I want to turn to, turn to James chapter 1, and then maybe put a finger in Genesis 22 as well, because that's where we're going to end up for most of the time, but we're going to start in James chapter 1 today. As you're turning there, what does it mean to be tested? What does it mean to be tested? We'd say, well, to try, to try out something, to assess, uh, to prove, to prove it out. So we might think of a test at school. Some of you are done with all your tests. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Some of you are getting ready for them as they come for our high schoolers and others. Uh, so we think about tests at school, or as teachers might call them, an opportunity for assessment, right? Always, always keeping it on the sunny side. Uh, think about test tubes, test tubes to see whether uh, your hypothesis works out, if it's valid in the, in the scientific laboratory. Uh, think about a test drive to see if that vehicle be a good fit for your family, for you, uh, hopefully without testing the limits of our budget, right? Uh, the entertainment industry uses test screenings, test screenings to see whether people will like their new TV show or their movie. Uh, If you Google the word test, which I may or may not have done this week, you'll be offered several ways to conduct a speed test. And with that, you can find out just how fast your internet speed is in your home. Uh, By the way, the church's download speed is 95.6 Mbps. I'm guessing that means megabytes per second. I don't know if that's fast or slow or whatever. It's fast enough for me, for what I'm doing. Um, in honor of Mother's Day, how many of you know what product this slogan advertised? Kid tested, mother approved. Kicks cereal is correct. Okay, so we have all these kinds of tests. In the book of James, uh, it says something interesting about testing. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we learn that we should... Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. In a sense, we're saying invite the testing. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, The passage continues, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Uh, Meaning, that person will say, well, I guess I'll just have to do this myself, or I'll have to find some other way. Verse 8 says, he, that guy is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. That sort of sounds like Abraham, doesn't it? That might have been said for many of the things that have transpired as we've looked through the life of Abraham in Genesis 12 through eventually we get to 25 in the series. God says to Abraham, you're going to have a son and your descendants will be like the grains of sand under your feet and like the stars in the heavens. Your offspring, capital O, Jesus will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And then Abraham says about his wife, Sarah, she's my sister. She's my sister. Don't hurt me. She's my sister. Later, Abraham suggests Eliezer of Damascus, uh, one of his servants, as, as a potential heir, because Sarah appears to be barren. And God says, no, that's not my promise. 
When Sarah later offers Abram a second wife to have a child with, some other way, being tossed about this way and that, he goes for it, doesn't he? He goes for it, and Ishmael is born. But God says, no, that's not my promise. And now, in Genesis 22, in verse 1 it says, after these things. Well, what are these things? Well, Isaac was born to 100-year-old Abraham, to 91-year-old Sarah. God has confirmed also that Isaac is the one, the son of God's promise. Abraham is worshiping the Lord in Beersheba. He's calling on the name of the Lord, and his faith is strong. And so now, God puts that faith to the test. Uh, By the way, who gave Abraham his faith? Who called him out of Ur of the Chaldees? Well, we know that God did that. Who strengthened Abraham's faith even as Abraham has struggled to not be a doubter? As he has struggled to be a man tossed about, even double-minded and unstable. We know that God has been the one strengthening Abraham's faith. And so if Abraham should succeed in this testing today, who knows what could happen, right? The suspense. If Abraham succeeds, who should get the glory? God should. This passage is not a how awesome is Abraham passage. This message is not going to be a be more like Abraham message. This passage is and this message is going to be a how awesome is God passage and message. And not in just how God has grown Abraham, but also in how we will see God's plan to provide for Abraham, for Isaac, and also for us. For us. It's important before we proceed uh, that we know this as well. God puts faith to the test. He tests. He does not tempt us. There's a difference. There's a difference. Continuing in James 1, verses 12 through 15, it says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Realize that's so important. If God were to be tempting you to sin, wouldn't he first have to have been tempted himself to induce that out of you? God cannot be tempted, therefore he tempts no one. But each person, it says, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So if we were to split things out here, we could say testing, testing proves out and builds our faith. It's a building mechanism. It builds us up. And that temptation then, temptation, is rooted in the desire to elicit sin. To lure us into sin. And God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. We sin because we want to. Because we love it. Satan, the demons, they tempt because they want us to sin. They want us to reject God and his lordship. And people only give in to temptation because they, in their own hearts want to. We're tempted by our own desires, this passage says. 
Uh, Amazingly, we think of a situation like Job, where God sovereignly allows for that temptation in his life. We think of those who crucified the Lord, doing exactly what God decreed sovereignly, and yet totally within their own desire, in their own volition. They sinned. And Christ called for their forgiveness. And we know that even the consequences of our sin, even the consequences of our sin, for the Christian, God promises to use those things for our good to make us more like Jesus. How good is God? When we get into the depths of those kinds of things, it can blow our minds, can it? But God reminded us of this in Hosea 11 when he said, I am God, not a man. It's good for us to remember that he is bigger than we are. Remember Romans 9 says this, can the, can the clay pot say to the potter, why would you make me like this? We can't do that. And we know this. God's tests are meant to prove out the faith that he's given to us and that he's growing in us, progressively perfecting his children as he's promised to do. So we know that Abraham's testing in Genesis 22 was simply that. It was a test. God had a plan way before, right? And he planned to provide for Abraham and for Isaac all along. But Abraham didn't know that. And we will have to keep that in our minds. We'll have to remember that as we read through this passage today. So, are you ready for Genesis 22? We're going to be there, verse 1. Genesis 22, verse 1. It says this, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. It's a way of saying, yeah, what is it? He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, the order in the Hebrew would read like this. Take your son, and then your only son, and then whom you love, and then Isaac. So there's this escalation. You see that going on? Take your son. Oh, okay. You're one of a kind son. Oh, the one you love so dearly? Uh, Isaac. <laughs> you see what's going on there? And what's Isaac's name mean? Laughter. And go on a trip, God says. That's all he knows so far. Sounds good so far, right? You know, we, we know what's coming. At this point, Abraham's like, hey, father-son trip. Yeah. But then God says, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So we might read this, and certainly the Jewish people in the wilderness would hear this narrative and say, really? Human sacrifice? Child sacrifice? Uh, No, 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 we read ahead in the book, and we know that God is not okay with that. God does not accept child sacrifices. Remember, though, Abraham doesn't have the rest of the book. He hasn't read ahead into Leviticus. And Abraham comes from a city where worship, the worship system included human sacrifice. And he quite possibly, if not probably, participated in it. It wouldn't be the first time around for him. On the other hand, God's already promised something to Abraham, didn't he? Something that seemingly would not allow for this premature death of Isaac. You kind of sense all these things swimming around in Abraham's mind right now. He must have been puzzled. Terrified. A burnt sacrifice entailed slitting the throat 
dismembering the sacrifice, putting all the parts with the wood for the burning, and so forth. This couldn't be. This couldn't be. And yet God commanded it. So verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. He didn't sleep in. You'd think he'd want to that day. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, so this is a three-day journey, lots of time for second thoughts. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Remember, God said, I'll let you know when it's the right place. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Breaking this verse down, Abraham just told the other two young men who traveled with him and with Isaac to stay there while where they were and that he, Abraham, and Isaac were going to worship and that he, Abraham, and Isaac were going to return to them. We're both coming back. What was Abraham thinking here? Because Abraham has been commanded to go offer Isaac as a burnt sacrifice, there's, there's really only one possibility. God had told Abraham and Isaac, he told Abraham that Isaac was the promised son through whom this new nation would come. So if God was going to fulfill that promise with a young man, uh, with this young man who's just been slaughtered, dismembered, burned, what would God have to do? Well, let's look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. The word of God answers this question for us. Praise God, we don't have to speculate. It says this, by what was being tested? Abraham's faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham believes that God is about to do a miracle. He believed he was going to see something happen that had never happened in a human sacrifice. The sacrifice was going to rise from the dead. So he fully intends on coming home with a resurrected Isaac. Amazing. Amazing. How's the faith test going so far? Pretty well. <laughs> Pretty good. Verse 6 in Genesis 22. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. Notice that the way the sentence is written, it differentiates the burnt offering with Isaac. It's like the writer's given us a little heads up here. <laughs> okay? Don't worry, don't worry. He's not going to die. It doesn't say Abraham took the wood for Isaac, the burnt offering, right? He's reassuring us of this. Verse 7. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, can you imagine the silence of this trip? The silence. They're not chit-chatting about things, I'd imagine. All of a sudden, Isaac says, Father. And he said, Here I am. Yes, son, what is it? 
he said, behold, (laughs) the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Light bulb. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. This translation is great. No problem with it at all. It says, God will provide for himself the lamb. The literal statement in the Hebrew is, God will see to it for himself. It's used sort of like a figure of speech. Uh, Think about this when the bad guy shows up in town in the old westerns, and people would go get the sheriff and make sure, you better see to it that that bad guy doesn't doesn't hurt us all, right? Make sure he saw to it that everybody was safe, that the, the bad guy didn't do no harm to nobody, right? Which actually, if that happened, double negative, nothing would happen. So it's all good anyways, right? But, I'm going to grammar police myself. But, Abraham is saying to Isaac here, God is going to see this through, Isaac. Don't worry. He doesn't tell Isaac any of the causes for concern. He doesn't tell Isaac what to worry about. But he tells him, God is going to see this through. He points Isaac's heart and mind to the one who keeps his promises. Good uh, good dad work there, Abraham. And so, Abraham continues to move forward by faith that God would raise Isaac up. And Isaac probably expects to find a lamb or something. We, we don't know. Maybe caught in a thicket. Uh, we'll see. Who knows? Uh, but Isaac knew his dad was sure that God would provide. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Some scholars think that Isaac was about 12 to 13 years old at this time. Old enough to ask questions. Certainly old enough to wiggle around and try to evade slaughter. So how much faith is Isaac displaying right now? Uh, Perhaps God's test stretched out farther than just Abraham's faith. Not that God didn't know that. And all we see here in this passage, all we can know is that it doesn't seem like Isaac is fighting back. He's submitting to what his father's promised, what he said. So as they arrive on the mountain and his dad builds the altar, no lamb. As Abraham calls Isaac over to him, where's the lamb? As Abraham ties the ropes around Isaac's wrists, around his feet, God will provide. God's going to see this through. As Abraham picks up his big boy, his son, his one-of-a-kind son, his son that he loves so dearly, the son of the promise, the son who is called laughter, Isaac, God will provide. And then verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He was in position with that knife ready to slit open Isaac's throat. Verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! He's like, yes! Right? In this moment, the heat, 
the, the tenseness, the lump in his throat, surely, the numbness in his hands. What a welcome voice from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know, that word know, I've observed it. Your faith has been put on display. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And with that, the test is over. The test is over. God knew the heart of Abraham. He knew his intent. The faith of Abraham has been tested and proven out to be true, to be deep. Abraham believed God. And now his belief has been clearly made visible. Visible. Listen to these two passages. This is Romans 4, 9 through 12. It says this. In this blessing then only, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before. He was circumcised. Remember that passage? We went through that with Genesis 15. That happened back in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God before he had to do that obedience thing of circumcision. And God counted his faith to him as righteousness. That was the time. But then it says this, James 2. James 2, 21 through 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Both Paul and James use the same statement from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. That's Genesis 22 that we just read today, or we're reading today because we're not done with it quite yet. What's the deal? Well, it says this right there in James. The scripture was fulfilled, that says. When was righteousness counted to Abraham? When he believed. Genesis 15. When was his belief, figuratively speaking, on display, fulfilled? When did his faith get displayed in works in this illustration? Genesis 22. Did Abraham get saved today as he attempted to obey God and offer Isaac on the altar? No. But his saving faith was sure put on display. Does that make sense, the difference between those two things? So when we think about these two kinds of justification, 
Paul, writing of the justification, that means being declared innocent, like a court term, being declared righteous. And then James, writing of the justification, that means proving out that you are just, showing that you are righteousness, that that you have righteousness in you. Who, Who did this testing benefit the most? God? Abraham. Did God need to know this? He was certainly involved relationally with Abraham and enjoying him. He's called the friend of God. Isn't it mind-blowing, by the way, that God desires and delights in relationship and in knowing us? It's like it's too good to be true. But who, after this event, did Abraham's faith become painfully aware to? Well, Isaac, for one. And Abraham. His faith had been justified, proven out, tested. And this was all of God's grace. And Abraham didn't have to be circumcised first to appease God. Abraham didn't have to actually slaughter Isaac to appease God because Abraham was counted as righteous, justified before God when he first believed. He was saved. And God was seeing to it that nothing bad was going to happen to his children, Abraham or Isaac. God was going to provide. The tester is now going to become the provider. Verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket. We guessed right. Caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram. Do you think he was probably pretty excited at that moment? That'll do. Runs over there, grabs that ram up. And he offered it up as a burnt sacrifice instead of, in the stead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. You hear the term before Jehovah Jireh? That's where it's from, right there. The Lord will provide. God will see to it. He's going to see this through. And what was it considering? What's he seeing through? A substitutionary atonement. That's what he's seeing through. It's a substitute. So Abraham called the place, the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God provided. Abraham held back his knife, untied Isaac, grabbed up this ram that God himself had provided as a substitute, tied it up and put it on the altar and worshipped God. Abraham could have said, God, I knew you were going to provide. I knew you were going to see this through. I didn't know how you were going to do it, but you did it. God, you did it. God, you did it. The Lord will provide. In verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Remember when he did that? When he walked through those cut pieces by himself? By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this. Because you've done this? And have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. He's not promising new things. He's just putting some weight on the promise. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. 
And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That sounds like it's conditional now, doesn't it? But these were unconditional promises. God is turning around his unconditional promises to Abraham that included and required Abraham's grace-induced participation and is celebrating it with Abraham. How good is God? Abraham is the way Abraham is because God has molded him and shaped him into the man he's become. And now he's showering praise on Abraham and cheering him on. Abraham, it's happening. As if God's saying, this is, this is surely happening. The covenant promises I've made to you, they're happening. You're fearing me. You're walking with me. Congratulations. Abraham, I knew you were going to believe. I knew you were going to follow me. I knew the faith that I gave you would hold strong and prove true. Abraham, you did it. You did it, Abraham. God's rewarding Abraham. God is sharing the victory with Abraham. How good is God? How loving, how gracious, how generous is our God? And so Abraham returned to his young men and who else? Isaac. And they arose, all four of them, and went together to Beersheba, back to where they've been living. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, three things I want to share with you, for, things for us to consider today as we look at this passage as a whole. Number one, we're reminded of progressive sanctification in this passage. Abraham had a good couple of days here, didn't he? Uh, however, of course, uh, it didn't feel like a good couple of days right up until the end. And I'm pretty sure Abraham wouldn't want to do this again next weekend. <laughs> I'm sure he was hoping this was a one-time deal. But as good as this was, how did he get there? Has his line of growth been a straight one? Always perfectly upward? Well, we know that's not true. Would he never sin again after this day? Has he now arrived? Well, no. Uh, we need to remember the promises of God. Okay, spiritual birth. How did we get born again? Ephesians 2.5 tells us that while we were dead in our sins, God made us alive with Christ. Colossians 1.13 tells us that, that we were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred over to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Praise God. What about our growth? 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes that we, as we behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into Christ-likeness. Beholding the glory of the Lord, it transforms us into Christ-likeness. One of the reasons we want to look at a passage like this today and not turn it into a five things to do to make yourself more godly and five things not to do to make yourself less godly is because the Bible teaches us that if we will look at a passage like this and say, How good is God? that will have a greater effect on our hearts and our minds and our sanctification than lists of things to do and lists of things not to do. Does that make sense? So praise God. Let's look at him and look at what he does and be amazed by him. That'll motivate us. The Apostle Paul also shows uh, both this and the responsibility in our sanctification. It's God's responsibility. It's our responsibility in our sanctification when he shares his desire to press on 
towards perfect sanctification in Philippians 3. So by that I mean this. God's promised that he's going to do it. Philippians 1, the same book, he says, God's going to complete the work that he started in you. And in Philippians 3, he says, so I'm going to work really hard at it. Both of those things, it's a both and going on. Rooted in what, though? And, and that desire coming from what, though? The grace of God and our birth in Christ, our transfer into his kingdom. So this is where Abraham was. This process of progressive sanctification. And this is where we are. And if you're here today, you know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. We're in this process. We were dead in our sins. God brought us to life in our salvation. And we're now being transformed. So there's going to be some high points and there's going to be some low points, aren't there? But the high points over time should be getting higher and more frequent. The low points over time should be getting less lower and less frequent. I'm not going to grammar police myself on that one. There's still sin. In 1 John 1, it reminds us that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. There's still plenty of reason for our humility. This is progressive growth. Leading to our, number three, glorification. Being made to be just like Jesus. God promises us this in Romans 8, among other places. 1 John 3, it says where we're told that uh, that when we see Jesus face to face, we'll be made to be just like him. That's where we're headed. That's where Abraham was headed. Where he is. Where we're headed. So first, our progressive sanctification. Uh, Number two, the idea of defining moments. Defining moments. Would this not be considered a defining moment in Abraham's life? But realize, neither Abraham's highest highs or lowest lows along the way defined him. That is not what defines him. They might have from Sarah's eyes. She might have had some words of definition for Abraham a few times along the way. What about Isaac's eyes? What about Ishmael's perspective? Hagar's? Abimelech's? Pharaoh's? We live in a defining moment world. We're looking for these defining moments. We live in a people's perspective defining who I am culture. It's all over the place. Inside and outside of the wires that go into our computers or the Wi-Fi. However fast it might be. Do a speed test. We have this world that is around us. However, Abraham wasn't saved the day he circumcised all the males in his household. And then unsaved when he married Hagar and and had Ishmael. And then saved when he believed God's promise of the birth of Isaac the next year. And then unsaved when he told Abimelech that Sarah was his sister again. And then saved again when he showed his faith and willingness to sacrifice Isaac. That's not how it was going down. And so who is the one who provided for our birth? Who provides for our growth? Who has promised our perfection? God has. Who's the one whose perspective on you matters for all eternity? God's. And with that, do you know when your defining moment was? It was the same day, same weekend, for every one of us here who call Jesus Lord. Uh, Technically, your first defining moment happened uh, before the creation of the world, before the foundations of the earth. And then on this earth, your defining moment was when Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place. That's your defining moment. Took the punishment that we deserve on himself and a few days later rose from the dead. Those moments changed everything for you if you've put your faith and trust in Christ. Everything else in life, they're just identifiers. 
They're not definers. They don't define us. They identify things, but they don't define us. We sin, and we remember who we are, who we were. We remember the old man. We remember our sin nature. We remember God's grace, and we repent, and we strive to grow. We obey. We do what we were called to do, and we remember that God's grace is there. We see that grace working itself out in our minds, our hearts, and then our actions. And like James wrote, we see the proof of God's saving work in our lives. These are identifiers. They point me to something else. We are not our own creators. We do not get to define ourselves. We were lost, dead in our trespasses and sins, and the Lord provided. And and he defines. And then this brings up number three. Where's Jesus in this passage? He's there. Where's Jesus in this passage? We, we might read through this passage today and see that Isaac is called your only son. We might even see Isaac carrying his own wood, the wood that would be used for his sacrifice, and then say, hey, Isaac, he's representing Jesus. And, and that's called a type, a type of Christ. Not like he's a kind of Jesus, but that he's an illustration of Jesus. We might say that, but wait. Is Isaac representing Jesus? If we say that Isaac is a type of Christ in this passage, we've missed a major component of this narrative. Do you know what it is? Isaac didn't die. Did he? Isaac didn't die. Who died? The ram. The ram. Who was representing Jesus in this narrative? The ram. Uh, then, then who would Isaac be representing? If anyone. Yeah, me. You. We're Isaac. Now, we're not Isaac, but in that story, we're the one who didn't get death. We didn't get death. The Jewish people would refer to the binding of Isaac in this passage as the akedah. It's the word they use. It's just a Hebrew word for the binding. It's just like a formalization of that word when they would go through the process of this sacrifice. When they would bind the animals for sacrifice, prepared for slaughter, they would use this word and remember that God was going to provide a substitute. Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. That substitutionary atonement. We are the ones who deserve to carry our own wood. We are the ones who deserve death and separation. We are the ones who deserve judgment and wrath. Where is the lamb? We might ask, just like Isaac did. And the Lord has seen to it. He's provided. And on that Friday, as they laid Jesus on the cross and prepared to drive the nails into his hand and into his feet, no one called out from heaven to stop them. It wasn't a test. It was our salvation. So we're going to pray now. And after we pray, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember that sacrifice. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. You are our provider. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death for his sacrifice. Thank you for our forgiveness, for our freedom. God, thank you for your work to bring us to life, 
your work to help us to grow, to bring about our growth. You don't just lend a hand, you do it. And you call us to participate with you in it, and then you reward us for something we couldn't do if you hadn't been gracious to us. And God, we look forward to the day when we get to see Jesus face to face. And we'll be made to be just like him. And God, may we as your church be a people who love to behold your glory and your goodness to us. And God, may that motivate us to continue to grow, to bring glory to you in our lives, through our words, through our obedience. May you be honored and glorified in this. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.